Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Sydney Opera House, to the Joan Sutherland Theatre, uh, just named quite recently, I believe, in honour of Joan Theatre. Um, my name is Jonathan Biggins, and it's my pleasure to be your host this evening. I am, today, I'm going to fly in the face of conventional wisdom. I'm going to meet one of my heroes, and I'm glad I, I have. Uh, may I take this opportunity to remind you to switch your phones to silent, uh, you can still get reception in the Joan Sutherland Theatre. Uh, if you're using Twitter, I'm told you can use the hashtag Palin. Alternatively, you could put the wretched things away and enjoy... <laughs> enjoy listening to someone who has something worthwhile to say. <laughs> Keep the pleasure for yourselves. Don't share it with others. Uh, Thanks do go to the Australian Ballet for allowing us to appear between performances, the matinee and evening performances of their productions of icons. But tonight we meet another icon. Yes, he's a Russian Orthodox religious painting. He's something completely different, yet reassuringly familiar. He's Python, ripping yarnist, global traveller, writer, comedian, and recently voted the nicest man in Hampstead, Northwestern Precinct. Would you please welcome Mr. Michael Palin? Thank you. 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 Oh, I think it's always good if you get that sort of response before you've even opened your mouth. <laughs> yes. Could be a you'll never get the same again. Once you've opened your mouth, that's it. <laughs> now, I know we are here to publicise your latest book, Brazil. I have a copy here, uh, which accompanies the series, which will be broadcast on the ABC tomorrow night, 7.30. Check your local guides. Uh, and I know you will be signing okay. these books for purchase afterwards, but I think a lot of people here would like to go back a little further in time. Um, as a lad growing up, did you ever have any desire or dream to have the sort of career you've had, an extraordinary career up to this point? A dream, possibly, you know. Um, desire, possibly, but likelihood, no, not at all. Um, I was born and brought up in Sheffield uh, in the 1940s and 50s after the war, and, um, you, you know, you felt fairly trapped there, really. I mean, I did... Uh, there was a great release for sort of things like the goon shows, uh, and comedy was a big release. And I knew I could sort of... I could act... I could play comedy because I could, I could impersonate the masters at school, which is always a very good thing. Um, you get a few laughs and avoid getting beaten up in the playground. You know, mm. you've got the... So I, I knew that I could, I could sort of... I, I enjoyed humour, but no, absolutely not the slightest inkling I'd end up doing what, I'm, what I've been doing. No, I mean, you know, my father was sort of... I probably thought I'd be an accountant or something like that. Fortunately, I didn't have the maths. Although I did become an accountant, of course. With, with, you did? Well, on stage, yeah. Oh, well, of course, you know, yes. The lion tamer. Yes. Sketch. Well, you've been Remember many that? things on stage. Yeah. Did, did you have anyone at school who encouraged you? Was there an influential teacher who... Um, you, well, not so much. When I went to university, there was. Um, my father was just dead set against my getting involved in any kind of acting. of any. Uh, so I used to have to take very obscure parts that he would never see me in and all that. Like Juliet, did, something like that. Well, yeah, no, he, I remember doing, um, uh, what was it, uh, The Apple Cart by George Bernard Shaw. And that was the only thing at school that my father saw me in. And the, there are two characters at the beginning, play the royal secretaries, Pam, Pamphilius and Sempronius. And I was Sempronius, and I was a bit worried that my father would see that I'd been rehearsing and acting. But actually went to sleep after about the first 30 seconds and didn't wake up till I'd gone off, and that was all right. So I don't think he knew I was in it. Yeah, jolly good play, jolly good play, old boy. And go, what were you in it? Oh. So you went to university, and obviously that proved the turning point. I think you met Terry Jones at Oxford, was that right? Yes, and, and actually in answer to your question about who encouraged me, there was a tutor there who did realise clearly that my heart wasn't in modern history totally and that I enjoyed acting. And um, you're doing, doing sort of university review, which was the big thing. That's where you, you learnt your writing and acting skills. And he was, for the he was the first person who really encouraged me, because I think he, he 
although he was supposed to be teaching me history, he realized that my talents lay, lay elsewhere and became very supportive. What have you been in recently? Well, sorry, jolly good, yes. So that was, that was very nice. I mean, University Review, that really sort of became the, the breeding ground of, of a lot of the new British comedy. And that was quite a departure, wasn't it? Because, I, I mean, the Python team was split between Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, but... What, what, what do you think sort of caused that, that new wave of comedy and moved it away from the variety halls and the radio and, and the universities became the place to find comedians? Um, I don't know. People relaxed a bit and um, it, it wasn't considered incompatible to have an education and do comedy. Uh, you know, sort of before, comedy was done by people who had gone into the theatre or were music hall comedians or, or script writers for the BBC to be doing a, you know, university reading uh, and doing some sort of complicated subject and being able to play comedy in your spare time. That was kind of, um, it was a new thing and it became hugely uh, popular after Beyond the Fringe. Mm. That was uh, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, uh, Alan Bennett, Jonathan uh, Miller. And that was, that was enormously successful because they had not just done university cabaret, they, were, um, they, they, they went on tour. They played the West End. They played uh, in, um, in New York, were amazingly successful. And what they were doing for the first time was sending up uh, bishops and prime ministers and anyone in authority and, and got away with it. Um, because there used to be a thing called the Lord Chamberlain in England, I remember that, who, who would censor everything, everything you made, every bit of theatre, you had to submit your script to the Lord Chamberlain in case there was anything naughty in it. And I remember we got something back once and it was about someone holding a plank as they crossed the stage in a suggestive position. <laughs> so you held the plank up like that, that was rude if you just held it at your side, it wasn't. So the, the Lord Chamberlain must be must have been consumed with kind of sexual sort of uh, images. His life must have been dreadful. Mm. It was sex, sex, sex everywhere. It's it like the British Board of Film Censors. I've got wood, I suppose. That may stem from well, that. Yes. <laughs> well, he, 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 he was the one who actually made that popular. <laughs> <laughs> he was the first one who saw the possibilities. But it's funny because one of the criticisms that is sometimes levelled at Monty Python is that it, it is too intellectual. Uh, well, yeah. I know. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't have thought Biggest Dickus was sort of up there with the, with the greats of classicism. No, no, Biggest Dickus is intellectual. Yeah. No, that was an idea. That was all about Roman authority. Oh, yes, yes, come on. But, but uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and well, it was, it was mock intellectual, wasn't it? I mean, we, well, we threw in philosophers every and, now and then. Yes. And yeah. And, and, and yet that sort of... Um, almost frowned at these days. You, you can't be elitist. Comedy has to be something that can be recognised by everyone. I, I think that... Uh, we, I suppose we were making comedy originally for people who'd had a similar sort of education to our own. So you would know about uh, Aeschylus, but you wouldn't know quite what he'd written. Um, you'd know about Proust, but you'd never read his books. So we would, we would use Proust, but we'd use him in that sort of silly whatever it was, the Summarise Proust competition, which I was always rather fond of. <laughs> Had to summarise Proust's masterwork in 15 seconds. You know, like, oh, 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 yes, uh, yeah, oh, that bloke, that bloke, oh, that, 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 that. swan, 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 yeah. Anyway, swan goes in, bong, sorry, you haven't made it. <laughs> uh, Terry Jones was a medievalist, is that right? Uh, he, he did continue. He's very old, yes, yeah. he is very old. <laughs> no, 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 Terry is a, a very accomplished medievalist, and I think Terry... Um, would have had and would have very much enjoyed um, an academic career. In fact, he still spends a lot of time, you know, writing uh, very, very obscure theses on, on Richard II and Chaucer and all that. I mean, he really knows his stuff there. And you wrote together as a team and then you met, met uh, with Cleese and Chapman. And where, where does Eric Idle fit into that sort of grouping? Was he with you or the other um, team? Eric was at Cambridge, but he was about two years after Cleese and Chapman, so he didn't really work with them. But he was, at the same time as we were doing the Oxford Review in Edinburgh at the festival in 1964, which was kind of like the turning point for me when I thought perhaps there is a chance of performing and, 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 uh, and writing as a career. Uh, he was doing the Cambridge Review and with a few others. And so, you know, we just met up through that way. But he, he's, he's, 
younger than the tall ones. And whose idea was it? it was, did the group just form by osmosis, or was, did someone actually say, I think this combination of people could work well? We, had, uh, we, we all got together to write uh, on the Frost Report. David Frost was very important at that time, and he sort of encouraged young talent because it was cheap, basically. But I mean, but he, no, I mean, it was fine. He, he put us together with a lot of other very good scriptwriters for a half-hour um, program called The Frost Report. That's where we all kind of met each other. And then uh, John, um, uh, Eric and, and Terry and myself went off to do Do Not Adjust Your Set, which is a children's show. Um, went, off, went out at 5.15 in the afternoon with the Bonzo Dog Band. Um, and it was an incredibly odd show, very bizarre. Uh, that we, I mean, the Bonzo Dogs, all their songs are sort of drug songs, uh, but rather so written in such a jolly, witty, funny way, all about kites flying and all that. that we got, got away with it in children's television, but uh, <laughs> it's all about snorting this, that, and the other. Anyway, we, um, um, and the main people who saw that show, there were a few children, but a lot of others were um, <laughs> Italian waiters. Um, which is was a favourite Italian restaurant, and, and completely unnoticed until one day they came in and said, "Oh, your show, your children, we love. Oh, do not adjust your set. We like that. We are, because you know we, we asleep all day, and we get up and we are dressing, and we watch your show. And then all the evening we are we are doing we are in the restaurant. So they were very very keen on this this show. So we should have written a lot more Italian." Food sketches, I think. Yes. We'd, have, we'd have had a real hit there. Anyway, we did that. John Cleese, Graham Chapman, and others did at last the 1948 show, which is a very had some wonderful, wacky things in. And we kind of viewed each other from a distance. And I, I think probably liked what we saw of each other's humour. And John rang up in 1969 and, and rang me up and said, look, why don't we get together and do um, something together? Um, so that's, that's really how it began. Well, I, I remember the first time I ever saw Monty Python's Flying Circus was in a, in a remote village in Scotland in 1970. Uh, I didn't have much idea what was going on. With, well, I was only 10 at the time. But oh, did we? <laughs> no, well, I was about to ask that question. Yeah. Did anyone? Because I, I, a similar thing happened with the goons. I mean, the BBC didn't really know what they had with no. the goons. How, how influenced were you by the goons as writers? Um, well, I, I loved the goon shows, and I loved it because... Um, it went completely out on a limb. You know, the Goon Show was not like anything else I'd ever, I'd ever heard. And um, when it, I mean, I was told about it at school, and I came home, and, and there was only one radio in the house, a very big wireless set with valves in it and all that. And, um, you know, my father let me listen to this show, and I just hoped and prayed he wouldn't come in when it was on, because, you know, it was all that people talking, <laughs> and he did come in, of course, right in the middle of one of the most absurd exchanges, and just said, is there something wrong with the set, old boy? And um, so I knew then that this was something worth, worth sort of following, because it... I mean, that was the thing. It distinguished sort of what myself and my contemporaries enjoyed, which was very, very different to the more conventional uh, comedy that my father had enjoyed. So it was, it, we discovered it. I say we. John Cleese was also a, a big goon fan, and so Terry Jones was. So we discovered something that was our appeal to us only, and we, we could understand it, and no one else could. Uh, it was a generational thing, really. Because, mm, um, I mean, for them, it, it was a sort of generational reaction against the austerity of the war, but I guess you were one step removed away from that, really, by the time you got going. Yeah, I mean, we were brought up after the war on a lot of war stories and a lot of, you know, kind of very, very serious stuff about the war and the military and um, what, what people have given their lives for and all that sort of thing. Um, and one really could one had to be tread very, very carefully in case you did something that was considered disrespectful. And... Um, the goons did it without being obviously satirical. They were just doing something which wasn't particularly respectful of any establishment. It was kind of completely subversive. And I think that was the, had that freshness which appealed to me. I thought, this is liberating, um, whatever it means. And I didn't know what it meant. But the interesting thing was they would do things with the medium, which I thought was, was interesting. So, I mean, radio plays were radio plays. Someone would come in, say the words, go out, whatever. But with the goons, you know, you'd get somebody 
knocking on a door or something and saying, hello, you know, it's Henry. And, and the footsteps come down for about 30 seconds, just the footsteps. And someone comes and says, hello, it's me, Min. Can you let me in? Yeah, I'll go and get the key. And then they go all the way up again, another 30 seconds and another minute. It's like two and a half minutes just of people going upstairs. Um, we love that. And I, I think later in Python, we, we're sort of... Um, we used things like that. I remember in one Python show, we wanted to turn the set off in the middle. In those days, when you know, television ended at whenever it was, sort of 11.30, the whole thing switched off, and a little white dot just got smaller and smaller, and then it was blackness. And we did this in the middle of a show. The BBC got very upset. No, you can't do that. People think we've closed down for the night. <laughs> oh, dear, turmoil. So we were not allowed to do things like that. But... Playing with the form was something that the goons had taught us. Well, I think one of the great playing with the forms that Monty Python achieved was to get away from the tyranny of the tag. You yes. just cut yeah, something yeah. else, yeah. Um, which I think comedians have, have thanked you for ever since. Uh, but you say that... Well, the... I mean, that, I, I have to say that was very much Terry Gilliam's contribution. It was wonderful to have an animator. Yes. No one had ever had an animator in a television comedy series. And not only were his animations brilliant, but they got us out of snatches of material that never got anywhere. We could, you know, we, it would come a fish tank and some would all end up in there and, you know, so it went on. So he was a great, uh, a great force for sort of moving us from one, one silly thing to another. How controlling were the BBC? I mean, did they just give you artistic licence and say, here you are, do whatever you want? And is that still the case or uh, uh, has television become much more a controlled yeah. environment? They were, um, to start with, they just let us get on with it. I mean, we had this very, very strange um, kind of audition at the BBC. Uh, we were all there. And, uh, I mean, nobody knew us, really. They knew John. John Cleese was well-known. And um, a writer called Barry Took, who liked us, took us to BBC, and he had a suit, and so he was the one who chaired the meeting. And he said, you know, just tell them what you want. And in came the head of comedy called Michael Mills, and it was 2.30 in the afternoon. He said, all right, so tell me about the show. What's, what's, it, what's it going to be called? We said, oh, well, we, uh, oh, oh, haven't got a, oh, we haven't got a title yet. Oh, is it going to be, will it have music, sort of musical acts? Oh, no, no. Whether we guest stars? Oh, guess, no, oh no. Never. Anyway, it was the world's worst job interview. <laughs> At the end of which, Michael Mills stands up and he says, all right, I'll give you 13 shows, but that's all. I mean, you know... <laughs> When would that ever happen now? I, I've got a feeling it was the good old day. It was after lunch, you know. And the BBC, people at the BBC then drank a lot. And he probably didn't know what he was saying. But it was also the fact the BBC were very big then. They controlled television almost entirely um, with their channels, with one ITV channel. And they, they could afford to let people go off into the basement and write their little shows. We were given very little money and we, we were put on late at night. So... That's how we got on. And it wasn't until later, when the show became a, more popular, that's when they suddenly noticed it and began to, um, <clears throat> began to uh, have concerns about what we were saying. And it was usually ludicrous concerns. There was a... I think it's actually in the summarised Proust competition, but in, in, when they're being asked their hobbies <laughs> before they summarised Proust. So what are your hobbies? <laughs> And this man's hobbies were strangling animals, golf, and masturbation. Um, and um, it got that sort of laugh from the studio audience. And the BBC found out that we had said the dreaded M-word on television. And uh, they ordered us to cut out masturbation. So we cut it out, and we didn't cut out the laugh. So we just got, uh, what are your hobbies? Strangling animals, golf, slight pause, roar of laughter. <laughs> Golf was never so funny as it was that moment. And uh, so it was little silly things like that that they tried to, they tried to control. Um, of course, now you'd be asked to cut out the line about strangling animals. Yes, well, exactly, yes, I know. Yeah, it, well, what we were allowed to get away with was, um, you, you know, um, I think Graham had a line in it. It was a sod the Bible. I've got a gay pride meeting to go to at 9 o'clock. And they let, they let that through. You know, I mean, I just don't begin to understand it. But masturbation was... A difficult one for the BBC then. Did, did you ever fall foul of, of Mary Whitehouse? Um, well, oddly enough, Mary Whitehouse didn't 
didn't take us on. She was a formidable fighter for the League of Decency or something like that. I think she sort of didn't really get Python. So we were not particularly bothered by her, no, no. And as the series became more successful, I mean, obviously pressure grows and uh, you are expected to come up with more. Is that when perhaps the, the creative tensions began to set in? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, uh, we, we wrote so fluently on the first series. We just stuff poured out. And second series almost as good. And then, um, I don't know, it's just as if it all became a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit harder just because we'd done maybe... 16, 17 shows and what was going to be in the 18th, what was going to be in the 19th. And I think particularly John was feeling a sort of pressure in his writing relationship with Graham. It wasn't kind of... They, they used to produce absolute solid gold hits all the time, whereas Terry and myself wrote tons of stuff, enormous amounts of stuff, most of which was thrown away, but in it there were some little jewels every now and then. And... Um, once Graham and, and John started, something went wrong in the writing relationship, and then it, they began to, began to falter. They didn't have quite such a success rate, and I think that's when John felt he wanted to do something else. He wasn't sure what it was, but he wanted to do something outside of Python, and that was really halfway through the second series. And once you've got that feeling that, that someone's not totally engaged, uh, it, it just becomes harder. We still wrote some good material, but... It means that one group, with mainly Terry, myself, and Eric, were sort of providing most of the material, and that, that wasn't the way it should be. Mm. You moved into films. <coughs> um, was that a, a liberating experience, or mm. did that just ramp up the pressure a little more? Although, I must say, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it does look like you're having a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, no, we were. Um, no, the film was actually... That was a great sort of cure-all for all our problems, because we'd done the television series. John had gone off and after the third series, to, to do Faulty Towers. And um, <clears throat> we, we, the, the reason we got together again was that we thought, well, why don't we make a film? It's, it, maybe some of the frustration was working at the BBC with the BBC director. No, he was a lovely bloke, but it wasn't one of us. Terry, we had Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam both desperately wanted to work in film. And um, so I think we felt, well, let's have a go at writing a film, and John was quite intrigued because it was different. He was doing his television you know, Faulty Towers, and doing the, um, doing the film was, was sort of a nice, different angle altogether, and we decided um, because we all like, we like movies a lot, we, did, we decided that the really crucial thing was to make sure that it's a 90 minutes, you've got to get something that sustains for 90 minutes. It can't be three 30-minute sort of bunches of sketches all stuck together. And um, <clears throat> so we came up with the, the Knights and the Holy Grail, and that seemed to be a rather good way of, of allowing us to do all sorts of different performances, different characters. The story's sort of known, but no one quite knows what happens in the end and what happens in the middle. But it gave it a sort of specious narrative. And um, it worked. I mean, it was, we had no money. It was all made for about £200,000. And we just cut corners wonderfully. We used to stop tourists when we were up in Scotland at Dune Castle. We stopped tourists going north and asked them if they'd like to be extras in a, <laughs> in a, in a sort of Arthurian film. Yes, are you a member of Actors' Equity? No, fine. No, oh, we didn't know. They were, they were a long way away from uh, the head of equity. We'd, we'd have them, but mostly they say they look very suspicious. No, we're on holiday. Do you don't want to be a peasant for a day? No, we don't. Thank you. <laughs> Off they go. But the ones that were peasants, now we'll, we'll see that film and say, if only... Ah, yeah. That was a holiday mm. to remember. Yeah. Yeah. But to my mind, the, the life of Brian, I think, for me personally, is, is one of the, the, the high points uh, of the whole Monty yeah. Python canon because it was a film that was not only very, very funny, but it, it did have a, a, a much more developed um, through-line plot and yes. also had a point yeah. um, about the human need for religion and not everyone who, who, who saw it liked it, obviously. Um, did you anticipate the reaction? I remember the scenes of quite strong protest outside the, the, the American screenings of the film. Uh, yes, I mean, I think we thought there'd be some bound to be. Someone's backs would be put up. Some backs would be put up. And in the end, it was rather wonderful because 
the protests in America were completely sort of ecumenical. All sorts of groups, Catholics, Jews, Buddhists, everybody, gathered together for the first time in history <laughs> in order to condemn the life of Brian. And um, so we felt we'd done something quite successful well, there. When we were works a force for some good. Yeah. But it took different shapes and forms, and quite early on, there were one or two uh, church people who, who obviously thought it was a good film, and they showed it to their congregation and said, we can learn something from this. And there were others, like the Bishop of Southwark and um, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a, used to be a very sort of caustic wit in England, and then became born again. And the two of them appeared in an interview with John Cleese and myself, on a late-night television show in, uh, just after Life Brown had come out. And um, they basically... Well, they hadn't seen the whole film all the way through, but they, they just sneered at it. And they said, just this fifth-rate, or I think it's a tenth-rate film, that's, you know, compared to the, the, the wonders of Christianity, everything that's happened throughout history... Um, that Christianity has brought to the world. And you heard John whisper, you know, in the Spanish Inquisition. And um, <laughs> I don't think they heard that on television. You know, what are you compared to this? You know, and they sneered, and they got it completely wrong. I remember being in the studio and feeling incredibly angry and powerless to do anything. I just thought, if, if you're going to engage in a debate, engage in a debate, but don't just kind of sneer and say, well, you know, that the, the, the film is no good. Because a lot of people thought it was good, and a lot of people thought it was well shot, and a lot of people felt it had a point. So there were, there were various confrontations, um, yes. Did you receive any death threats? Um, no, no, not me personally, no, no. I don't think I know the end of any death threats. It was before the era of death threats, fortunately. Well, yes, I, yeah. I, I was thinking, yeah. if you are going to be a... It's probably better to be a Christian atheist than any oh, other yes. sort, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, the Church of England were very... They're, they're terribly nice people, mm. terribly nice people, <laughs> you know? They don't know what a fatwa is, or <laughs> that sort of thing. Jolly, jolly nice, jolly good chaps, Just yes. We don't quite understand it, but jolly good, jolly good. Do try, yeah. They're all university boys anyway, you know. <laughs> But backtracking slightly, uh, Monty Python went out live on the road, and I, and I think there was a reference to you went to America, and there was a, a, I saw some a, a disastrous performance on the Johnny Carson show. Was that? Oh yes. What, what did that refer to? There were many disastrous performances. I, well, we 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 had hoped people had tried to you know, sell Python to America, um, and. It didn't, hadn't really worked, and the American networks pretty keen. But there was a very, there was a record company out there who loved what we did, and they, for some reason, got us on um, the Johnny Carson show when we were we just finished a pretty disastrous tour of Canada. I have to say, Python in Canada. Oh God, you know, there was a ghost slow on Canada Airlines, so we got, all our props got lost. You know, try and find a dead parrot, you know, in <laughs> in Calgary on a cold Friday night. <laughs> Um, doesn't work, but so we're pretty dejected. But we were on the Carson show, and we, we were really pleased. And we just—I think we chose rather strange material. Um, I, I think it was a, the penguin on top of the television. Oh, that penguin's going to explode! Oh, yeah, bang! It's exploded. And I mean, they didn't know—they begin to know what we were on about. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know who the, it, Johnny Carson wasn't actually on even that week. It was a guy called um, Joey Bishop was the host that week, and he just said. Well, I don't know what these guys do. You don't know what these guys do, but here they are. Money pythons, flying circus, you know. So we went and did our bit. So it was, it was, it was very embarrassingly bad. Mm. But you did recover, and you did, of course, obviously go on and do a lot of other things. Uh, and with Terry Jones, you, you made some of, well, from fond memories I have of ripping yarns. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I and I guess that was a, probably a, a more personal project, but it... You, you say you, you read history at university, but, I mean, it's very much about um, a, a Britain that had already disappeared. Yes, really. Yeah. Um, how was that, and, and, and do you look back on them fondly, or...? Very fondly, yes. I, I, uh, Terry and myself felt that after Python we had to do something that was very different from Python. You know? so, so we got these ideas, basically from old school books, Tales of heroism and pluck, you know, explorers, adventures, escapes from prison of war camps, all the sort of stuff that was around in the 30s and 40s. Um, and, you know, school stories. We, we took one of those each week and um, 
you know, decided to try and shoot them without an audience to, on film, use actors rather than comedians and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite a, it was quite a breakthrough. And I think some of them work better than others. Um, and some of my, my favorite things are, are stuff we've done at the Ripping Yarns. I mean, there's some, there's some nice moments. So we were up this called pre-Downton Abbey stuff. There was this sort of couple at a long table, lord at one end, lady at the other. And um, they don't have anything to talk about. I'm in the middle there, and she says, toast's frightfully nice this morning, Barty. He says, yeah, terribly good toast, terribly good toast. Yeah, frightfully good toast. Who made the toast? I think, who made the toast? I think it was, it was little, little Betty. Oh, yes, well, free her. Set her free. Set her free. <laughs> and she, of course, she's free. We don't have any slavery in this country anymore. She's free. What? scrubs the floor and on hands and knees and she's free. Of course she is. Don't be so stupid. And um, all this sort of, don't get emotional in front of the boy, Marty, and all that sort of stuff. So it was rather nice to play around with those kind of characters. He was, he was, that, he was one of my favourite characters, that, that, uh, the Lord, because he then went into a sort of reverie. I often think, you know, if everyone in the world had been sort of nice to each other, we wouldn't have had many of the wars that we've had. <laughs> you know, for false... That, that general went to, to Magdeburg and said, oh, what a lovely city, I like this. He wouldn't have gone down as the butcher of Magdeburg. And uh, <laughs> so it was rather obscure, some historical stuff, but in a nice... I was trying to write characters, really, at the time. I loved that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Downton Abbey because there, there has been a sort of resurgence of nostalgia for the old yeah. days, the good old yes. days. Yes, yeah. People tend to forget that they weren't <clears throat> quite so good. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. It, it, I mean, it, it is a Britain that has, has largely gone, and, and we'll move on, obviously, to your, well, one of your current uh, phases of your career, the travel. Um, and you, did you kind of fall into around the world in 80 days, or were you, um, was it what you thought it would be? Or um, well, no, it, it, it happened out? quite oddly, because I was, uh, I was, I'd just finished doing Fish Called Wanda with, uh, with mm. John. It, it was very nice, and, uh, and it was a great film to do. And Python had finished, and I was in sort of limbo, and, and, and the phone rang, and someone from the BBC said, you know, we've got a very, very um, special project, and we want you to do it, because you've got all the various um, qualities that it will entail, and he wouldn't even talk about it on the phone, it was kind of like, you know some secret weapon in a war. So he had to come around to the house, tell me about it. And it was this idea of going around the world in 80 days. And he said, you know, just, um, I hope you'll consider it because just you've got everything. You've got the, you know, the comedy, you've got the wit, you've got the sort of experience, your physical sort of, um, you know, adventurousness, all that sort of. Anyway, he laid it on really thick. And so I said, um, yeah, oh, well, around the world, I'll do it. And of course, it was, we were halfway around the world. We were, we were stuck in Madras where some freighter had broken down, waiting to move on. And the director had a few beers and admitted to me that I was the fifth person they'd asked to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd been through this list. I asked yeah. Palin, yeah. 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 Tell him he's the only man who can do this. Mm. And uh, I swallowed it. But that's Jimmy Savile was number three. That's how yeah. it happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three, four, and five, yes. Um, <laughs> he, um, anyway, so... I'd said yes. Really, I said yes um, without thinking about it too much because it involved going around the world. And, I, and I'd, always, I'd always been fascinated from when I was very young, stories of exploration and travel and strange places and waterfalls and North Poles and South Poles and all that. I'd read all these books and I thought, now I'm going to have a chance at last at the age of 45, to go and see some of these places. So that's why I'd, I'd said yes. Then when we did it, I realized there's no script. I didn't know quite how I was going to do it. Was I going to be me? Was I going to be an actor doing it? How, how should I play this? And um, it was quite nerve-wracking, actually, the process of making it, because I, I kept thinking, for a start, we won't get around the world in 80 days, and it'll just be me rambling on and trying to buy tickets at the Egyptian railway stations and not knowing the language and, and generally, you know, sort of farting about. And um, it, it surprisingly took off. And people liked the fact that I didn't know what I was doing half the time. And if I was ill, I told them I was ill and didn't pretend that I was, uh, you know, the master traveller who had all the, had all the answers. And so that's really... I went back to acting after that. I, I said, that's it, you know, 
I've done one of those, I got away with it, fine. And then a little bit later, I began to think, well, you know, other other parts of the world, we've been around the middle, maybe north to south, asked the BBC about pole to pole, and, uh, and they agreed, and that became, that was successful, despite the fact there was no Jules Verne story, mm. there was no sort of MacGuffin, mm. and I had to get round in a certain time. It was just... It was just pure travel, and people seemed to like the fact I was doing it. Well, with Round the World in 80 Days, I mean, how much of the responsibility for the trip was yours? I mean, did you, did you really have to go and buy the airline tickets? Did you really have to make the schedule, or was there a, a team of researchers doing that for you? Well, there was a... You know, people, the director and location manager had been out beforehand, um, but they would just tell me that the tickets for, you know, from Alexandria to Portside are from that booth there go and buy one. So, I mean, I wasn't, wasn't given much more guidance than that, and you discovered as you went along. And that was part of, it was part of the fun. Um, but as I say, it was also, as I say, what made it work was actually not trying to be an Englishman abroad, but just be me. So the frustration you get is not frustration that's laid on thick because it's, it's, it's what you think Phileas Fogg might have done. It was just genuine. And that was, once I'd done that, I felt, well, that's a way of traveling that I don't have to dissemble, I don't have to be somebody else. I can just be me looking at the world. And people seem to enjoy that for some strange reason. How different is it traveling with a, with a film crew, uh, crew in tow? I mean, what, what sort of, obviously, people that you meet are going to react in a very, very different way. Yeah. Uh, is it possible to get a, a genuine engagement with where you are when there's the, the camera perched on the shoulder? Uh, yeah, it's possible because we, we, we're very kind of discreet. We don't go in there with all guns blazing. You just you go to an area, just check it out, make sure people are happy um, there. And then, um, you, you know, just, just try and get them to talk, not as, as we develop, not a sit-down interview about the big issues, but just have a meal with them, walk with them. If they're fishing, go and fishing. If they're on a boat, talk to them on a boat. And, uh, and so try and get involved in their lives so it's not stop what you're doing and answer questions from this Englishman. And, um, and so that's, you know, that, that was the way we approached it. And sometimes it, was, it had some very odd results because uh, I mean, generally speaking, nobody knew who I was, which helped a lot. Uh, they, they weren't um, you know, they, they didn't know quite where I'd come from. But occasionally you would, you would have a problem. And there was, I remember going in a boat up the Norwegian coast, um, and it was very, the clouds very low. And the director said, Well, go and, you know, go and meet some people. The camera will be around. Just go and meet some people on the boat and talk to them. So I sort of go and talk to people. And, and I met this man who was um, uh, in the stern, just looking out rather gloomily. And I got talking to him. It turned out he was the lighthouse keeper of the most northerly lighthouse um, in Europe. And uh, he was a very gloomy man. And I said, so uh, is it, is it a difficult job? He said, oh, yes, yes, it's a very, very difficult job. Um, and I said, so, I mean, on your own? Yes, I'm on my own all the time. It's, it's, it's tough. And I said, six months of the year, you know, you, you're there. You just, uh, six months of the year, it is, uh, it's dark, yeah, dark all, all the time. And I said, well, what do you do? How do you get through it? He said, we watch your shows <laughs> on, on the television. And um, so we had to stop that interview straight away. And it just sounded, <laughs> he really brightened up at that point. It was rather, sort of, rather touching, really. Well, I suppose the, I mean, the one advantage, the other six months, you've got eternal sunlight, so there's not much call to man your lighthouse, really, for half No, 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 that's right. But, yeah. <laughs> but it Is looked there... as though it was the darkness that had uh, affected him more. No. Did, did you notice any difference between going around the world that way and going around the world that way? Is yes. Is it a, a very different experience, and how so? Because we, we, around the world in 80 days, actually a lot of time was spent on the ocean. I mean, it's 21 days, I think, we're on a... Was it something like that? No, it was 12 days. That's right. Fog took 21 days to cross the Pacific. We were 12 days on this container ship. And um, there was really nothing to film in all that time. Um, and we, I'd just go out, Michael, go out on deck, see if it's got rough. And it was a bit rough, so I'd go out on deck. And the rest of it's just containers and all that, you know. And um, 
the director uh, ran out of ran out of stories, um, and that was Roger Mills. He's very Roger was always one looking for a controversial story, and even he was flawed on this container ship. Having tried on the first night, you know, we 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 um, were all sitting at the captain's table. <laughs> the first question Roger asked us: "Is there much homosexuality on board this ship?" <laughs> and uh, oh, <laughs> and very nice Indian captain said, "No, not not on this ship, not." <laughs> you could see the director's face drop. So what what we're going to do? When we did when we did North Pole to South Pole, and and it was true. Um, when we did North Pole to South Pole, we decided that we, you know, we had to go down through uh, the maximum amount of land. So, actually, it was deliberately designed to meet more people and see more countries. And um, it turned into a, a quite extraordinary journey. Um, and which meridian journey. did you go down? I... Well, yeah, was, I think it was 20-something degrees um, uh, uh, east. It took you down through... Um, uh, through Scandinavia from the North Pole, well, through Svalbard, Scandinavia, all the way down through what was then the Soviet Union, and then all the way through Africa from uh, Cairo to the Cape, and then we were going to go in a South African boat to the South Pole, but that didn't work out. But it was an amazing trip and an amazing year. Uh, and we went through the Soviet... was probably the last documentary to be made in the old Soviet Union. And nobody, nobody had an inkling what was going to go on there. And we talked to a man on a train in Kiev, and he, he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually Ukrainian. But, uh, you know, uh, I said, do you think you'll ever get your own country? And he said, uh, I'm determined that we will. You know, maybe not in my lifetime, uh, maybe not in my son's lifetime, but one day there will be an independent Ukraine. And that happened by December. That was in four months. <laughs> the whole Soviet Union had fallen apart. We went down through Ethiopia, uh, a dictator had been there for about 30 years, had just been deposed by a, a, an army of kids, and 13 or 14-year-old kids with guns. We went down through Zambia. Kenneth Kaunda had been there for 22 years. He'd just lost an election. I mean, it was quite, <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. It was rather like one of those old comedy shows where people walk through a department store or something, things fall, fall down behind them, and they're just going on. Oh. <laughs> so the whole world was falling apart, and we were tootling on, so we were just going to the South Pole. So you've, you've, you've done round the world in 80 days, you've done pole to pole. Yeah. Uh, Europe? Europe was the, the last continent we did. Was we did New Europe, which was the, the new countries that had just been added to the European Union, which was basically um, the old Eastern European countries, um, Poland and, and what, Bosnia and all, all those sort of countries. Yes, yeah, so we did that about five years ago. And how much has it changed? Well, we'll get on to Brazil in a minute, but uh, I remember in the days of, you know, and the obligatory European trip that most Australians feel they, they have to do, the only communication you had with home was post-restant, really. You yeah, turn yes. up. That's right. uh, but yeah. now, I, everywhere you go, you, my cousin's children were out late recently, and everything I had to be photographed oh, yes, it could yes. be seen. Yes, everything. Uh, and everything had to be immediately relayed on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and they were in constant contact with their parents. Yeah and never out of it. Yeah. And you never really got the sense that they'd actually gone anywhere. Yeah, um, yes, yeah, yeah. Do, 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 have you noticed a, a difference yes. in the people who travel? Um, well, yes. I mean, we were, like, when we were on the Dow for seven days, we were totally out of communication with the rest of the world. Now, you know, the reception, probably in the middle of Indian Ocean and London, is probably better than different parts of London. And I remember I was able to ring my wife from the Tibetan Plateau. Really good line, you know. But it doesn't work, you see. You ring up from the Tibetan plateau and you say, hello, dear. It says, hello, and you know something's happening at home. Hello. Never I'm, on, I'm on the Tibetan plateau. I can see all the Himalayan range laid out. And she's saying, where is the key for the window <laughs> that has to be replaced and was supposed to be done before you went off? And so I said, well, I think it's, you know, it's in the bathroom. It's in the small bathroom. You know, one, it's not there. It's not there. You moved it. And I'm looking around and there's Everest and Chomolunga and all these great Annapurna and these beautiful venue. And I'm trying to remember where I left the bloody key for the window. So I'm, I'm worried about this instant communication. Mm. Sometimes it's better not to, not better to be able know. to instantly, instantly tell people where you are. Does your wife resent you in general, or...? <laughs> yes. 
Yes, that's why we've been together for so long. You know, just I am the butt of her resentment. And uh, but do, I mean, because no, you travel alone, don't you? Don't you I, don't I, bring the family along? I do don't you? bring the family. No. Um, but I mean, the great thing is that, that Helen does not enjoy adventure traveling. You know, going up Annapurna in two days flat with altitude sickness does not appeal to her. Funny. Um, funny, mm. funny woman, yeah. Where she just likes to go somewhere reasonably comfortable, have some sunshine, feel healthier, go around an old town, take some pictures and go, go home, really. And um, so there's not a feeling of, of, of jealousy that I'm traveling. And in fact, I think, you know, I, um, it's not resentment. I think she's quite pleased that I go on these long journeys <laughs> because she then runs the house the way she's always wanted to do it. And people say, oh, your poor wife, you know, which I said, not poor. She's always pushing maps at me, you know, and saying, buying me globes for Christmas <laughs> and all that. So, uh, oh, here's somewhere you haven't been. <laughs> and I don't know what's going on there. I don't know. I mean, do you go on holidays? Yeah, I'd go on holidays, yeah. And, and what yeah. would your idea of a Quite holiday be if it's holiday. not climbing a plateau? Oh, my idea of a holiday is, is I, I can I just sit and do nothing and read a book and, and, and have as many beers as I want and, you know, and, and have some coffee and wander around an old town. And Yeah, I mean, it's fairly simple like people do on, on holidays. I mean, the, the, the travels are so intense because you're, you're trying to get all the material filmed walking backwards and forwards, talking to people, doing sometimes three interviews a day with people who don't speak your language. Then you've got to write down all the bits for the book, which you're going to write later on. So it's, absolutely, it's pretty exhausting. Uh, so there's something really nice about a holiday being a holiday, meaning you, whatever, what does a holiday mean? Holy day. Anyway, what I think, think of it as an absence of the work that you've had to do all the rest of the time. And do you travel far for your holidays or do you prefer to go around the corner? No, we've been, occasionally I've been with Helen to go, we've been to Africa. She quite likes safari stuff. And we've filmed in Africa and met some very good people there who, who are only too um, happy for you to come over. And they, um, and they you know, little single plane, engine planes, take you over the jungle and all that. We've had some quite adventurous times there, actually. Otherwise, we'd go to New York or, or Paris or Barcelona or Melbourne, somewhere, you know. Yeah, Somewhere off the beaten track. Mm. <laughs> I bet you didn't say that last night. Um, <laughs> which brings That's us, of course, to the latest one. Uh, copies are available for sale and will be signed in the uh, foyer of the concert hall if you, if you do wish to avail yourself of this quality production. Uh, Brazil, it's... Um, in fact... I'm just showing them. Yeah. I'm just showing them I have the equipment. Oh, I should get you to sign this one. Um, I mean, that looks like it could be in the Kimberley, really, doesn't it? Uh, a a yes. vast iron ore mine. Well, uh, and Australia was, and Brazil, not, not dissimilar. dissimilar. Not dissimilar, um, but quite an extraordinary country and one that we really don't know a great deal about. And I guess, if anything, our prejudices are of uh, extreme poverty and extreme wealth butting up against mm. each other in this very strange sort of tropical climate as everything rots around it. But this book has opened my eyes. And, and were your eyes opened by the travels you did here? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I sort of had a... Brazil, for me, was a sort of fantasy. It's a bit like the Terry Gilliam film, which I was also called Brazil. And they use the Brazil theme when Jonathan Price has been tortured by me, I have to say. So nice to play a bad baddie. And um, he breaks down, and it just, his head has gone... You can just hear the Brazil theme playing, so it represents sort of escape, a fantasy world where the sun shines all the time. And people dance very gently and have a lot of sex. And I, you know, thought, well, that's, that's what I thought Brazil was. And it was. Absolutely <laughs> true. Awful lot of sex. No, I... Um, so, uh, not a lot of phone uh, calls home from Brazil. No. <laughs> I found the key. Do you remember where the key is, by the way? Um, no, it, it was... It, 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 it was an eye-opener because um, it's incredibly... Um, um, the, the potential of Brazil is now a, a, a extraordinary. And suddenly, this country, which 20 years ago had, I think, the inflation of 2,000%, has now got its economy together. It's, it's you, you know, it, it's one of the, you know, what's forecast to be one of the four big economies of the future. There's the World Cup going to be there, the World Cup soccer, and then there's going to be the Olymp next Olympics. And suddenly, you know, all the various other elements of Brazil, apart from the lovely lifestyle, are going to have to be dealt with. And there's a lot of poverty. And in, certainly in Rio, 
you've got these uh, shanty towns, the favelas, which are, are sort of right behind uh, Copacabana, Ipanema Beach. So you've got the most expensive re real estate in the southern hemisphere almost. And then behind it, these shanty towns on the mountains looking down. It's a very strange relationship. There's a, a Brazilian artist who, who showed me around. He said it's like you know, Saint-Tropez surrounded by Mogadishu. And uh, I knew what he meant. And they've got to deal with these shanty towns because they've they ignored them. They ignored the people who came south to find work. They just said, oh, go and live where you want. We'll, we'll, we'll call you when we need you. And they didn't give them, give them sanitation. They didn't give them running water. They didn't give them electricity. And they gave them no security. So the security in these places has been provided by criminal gangs, mostly drug traffickers. And there's a huge you know, push on at the moment by the authorities in Rio uh, City and State to try and get rid of the um, the drug gangs and bring the, these favelas into the intercity life and improve them. And it's, I don't think they're going to do it in time. I mean, it's, these, it's a very, very strange Well, there's, there's a great passage in the book. You go to visit a young urban professional couple in a, in a suburb of Rio and they're feeling the squeeze and, and, the, yeah. and the threat they feel the most. And you could see that the latest addition to the house in the favela as it comes yeah. down the hill, and, and yeah. it's going to, it could possibly engulf them. Yeah. And the other thing, of, of, I mean, is Brazil becoming more aware? I mean, we, we know a lot about the deforestation of the Amazon and yeah. the significance. I didn't realise Brazil, you say, is twice the size of India. Yes, is that right? Yeah. I think, I well, that? it's in the well, book, so it yeah, must be yeah. right. Um, yeah. uh, I know it's the fifth biggest country in the world, so that probably is about right. Yes, yeah, yeah. so, but in terms of, and, and I think they have some phenomenal amount, uh, a very high percentage of the world's fresh water yeah. as well. So they yeah. are very significant, not only yeah. to themselves, these resources, but to the world in general. Yes. Did you notice a, a growing awareness uh, and environmentalism? beginning to inform the political debate there? Um, yeah, I did feel that. And I, I mean, I, we didn't speak to everybody, and we probably spoke to a lot of people who work in and around the rainforest and were very concerned about this issue. But um, the, the facts are that the rate of deforestation has dropped uh, for the last eight years. There's been less deforestation than the year before. And they're always wonderful. They always talk about, you know, oh, it, there's been an area the size of Belgium has been removed. But Belgium always gets sort of, you know, gets this moment. And now it's areas half the size of Belgium. I mean, do you know how big Belgium is? I don't know how big Belgium is. Uh, and they said to me, no, now it is only half the size of Belgium. And I said, oh, like Flanders? I said, rather, you know, being rather clever. Mm. What? <laughs> um, but there is, a, <laughs> there is a decrease in the rate and, and, a, and a, an encouraging debate about their responsibilities to the people who live in the rainforest as well, because there, there are um, um, some several hundred tribes living, some of them not yet made contact with in the, in the rainforest, and they're living in areas where there's potential gold or minerals and all that sort of thing. So they are really trying to address the whole problem of, 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 of you know, enriching the country and, and the economy and building schools and all that sort of thing, but at the same time not damaging this extraordinarily important um, uh, natural forest they've got, the biggest forest in the world. As you say, over 24% of the world's fresh water is in the Amazon basin and all that sort of thing. So it's kind of something that, that affects us all and they're aware, I think they're aware of that now. But there's, you know, one thing I was told by, even by the, one of the, we, we, we talked to a president who um, in the 1990s had sort of turned the country around and um, I, I said, we, we talked about things, and I said, look, Brazil seems to have so much going for it. Um, the people seem to be sort of generally happy here. You've got a lovely climate. You've got abundance of everything. Is there anything, you know, you look at, you look at the UK, you know, for instance, is there anything a Brazilian like you might envy? And he just said straight away, the rule of law. And he said, you know, just there is so much corruption here still. And um, a lot of the money that's made is going into to line people's pockets. Uh, well, yes, the, yeah. the, the, the um, vast mining and uh, was it privatised and went into the, the son of the minister who was running it? And yes. Now he wants to build a 690 kilometre pipeline we, to pour iron ore from. Yes, the, yes. How did he get permission to do that exactly? I you know, wonder. Kind of, yeah, exactly. No, there's a bit of that. But does that make you despair? Because I, in, in the, we've only got five minutes left before the ballerinas return. Um, 
and we don't want to be here when they do. No, uh, sure. The... Tutu. The, the novel, you, you, not only are you an actor and, and writer, have you, have you directed? No, I've, I don't think I've ever directed, no. Not, not no, I don't think inspired. I have. I don't think I have, no. I always sound as Michael Payne, director, writer, novelist, ballet dancer. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've never done directing, I don't think, but except you, at school, yeah. You, you have um, written a novel, uh, well, two novels, and I, I've, I, I couldn't get the first one, but I read the second one, The Truth, which has a, a strong environmental theme. Is, is that something that you, A, feel passionately about, and B, has that been informed by your travels throughout the world where you perhaps see countries that do not have the rule of law? Yeah. Uh, and do you think maybe time, as you said, perhaps is, mm. is running out? Well, I've always been very impressed on my travels that the people who seem to have the most well-adjusted life and the people who welcome you and give you most hospitality are usually the poorer people, people who have to work together and live together because that's, that's cooperation is vital um, and they're very inventive and they generally tend to live in villages rather than the cities. Um, they harvest together and all that sort of thing. And, and I've, I, I've always felt that these are people who tend to be sidetracked by urbanites and yet we, we should be learning from people like that. They do have a way of working together and I think as soon as you have more choices, you become richer, then suddenly the, the, uh, the exclusiveness comes up, the barriers come up. Suddenly we can't talk to each other again. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly a fact that where, where we have got our very best material uh, and where we've been most looked after um, are sort of villages in, the, in Pakistan, up by the border. Um, where we've had the most difficult time filming is Beverly Hills. You know, we went to try to film in Los Angeles. You can't get near anyone's house, you know, it's all electrified and they're all barriers and bolts and all that sort of thing. And yet that's the richest sort of moment, well, one may challenge it, but one of the more sophisticated communities in the world. And I, so I'm rather sort of keen on trying to give as much attention to, to people who at the, uh, at the bottom end of the scale, um, not, not just out of sort of, um, you know, a patronizing attitude, but because I think we really can learn things. And I, um, I followed up a story, which, which the novel is sort of based on, of an Indian community being there 2,000 years in the forest in India. Along comes an aluminium plant. They need the bauxite for the plant, and the bauxite is um, the top 30 feet of this sacred mountain. And I went to the place and saw this where they live. And, and okay, their way of life is very different from ours. They're not doing things all the time. They're not doing deals. They're not making anything. They're just living. But if that... If that hill is removed, that is the end of it. That's the end of their sacred hill. And I just feel, just because there's a small number of them, and because they have a different way of life from our own, we should not therefore assume, sorry, the steamroller of uh, progress is going to roll over you. So I, I kind of feel slightly like stopping the steamroller every now and then, or, or trying to do something to stop it. Mm, but we, we all benefit from riding on the steamroller as well, don't we? Well, of course, uh, and that's very, very important. And this is the, I mean, the, the, novel is, no, the novel is about someone trying to find the truth. And, of course, they're, they're compromised because in order to get to across the world, you need the aluminium that the plant has made. You need the aluminium for your mobile and your phone and all that. But we just, how much do we need? That's all. <laughs> well, indeed. Did you, do you enjoy um, novel writing or is it a... Um, it's a bit lonely. Mm. It's a bit lonely. I sometimes I think, well, why, why am I doing this? And I was sitting up, and some days you just can't write anything. Nothing happens in the book. You can't. And you, you think I've invented these characters. Go on, go out the door, cross, cr cross the road, meet somebody, fall in love, do something. No, no, we don't want to. <laughs> we want to stay here. Okay, I'm going to. I'm going to. You're going to be. You're, you're going to be sort of blown up. No, oh, no, no, that's not right. And you have the helplessness. And I sometimes feel novel writing. You, you're a bit spoiled. I remember writing in my writing room one day. I, no ideas would come. And I was looking out of the window, and a telephone engineer arrived, and they set up their little stall, and they, they pulled up the, the manhole cover. They got all the wires out. They fiddled with the wires. In an hour, they'd done whatever they had to do, packed up, got in their van, and off they went. And I thought, they'd done something. In an hour, they have done something. I'm just a novelist sitting there. I've done nothing. <laughs> Imagine if they what, what do you do, Mike? I'm a novelist. I was just, what were you doing all day? Oh, I was thinking about what my characters might do. And they were just mending something, doing something practical. But I do enjoy it, yeah. I enjoy it in the end. <laughs> Sorry. 
Sorry to bring it all down at the end of this. Well, look, we, we, are, we are running out of time, but yep. I guess with the, the wide range of options open to you, including, if you so wished, I'm sure, telephony repair, um, <laughs> what, what, what do you want to do next? Um, what will you do next? I just don't know. I mean, I, I've never, I've never known quite what I'm going to do. I've always been freelance. It's always been a surprise. I just hope something will come along that will be different from anything I've done before, and will be a challenge, and will keep me thinking and moving and doing doing something you know, that's fresh and exciting. Well, you have a chance to join the Australian Ballet in 12 seconds. Would you please thank <laughs> Mr. Michael Paley? Thank you. 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 Thanks. Bye.